Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode six, recording on Friday, June 14th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of Book Riot. Rebecca, happy Friday. Happy Friday, Jeff. How are you? I'm recovering. Um, It's always good to get to Friday and get to record the podcast. It's like the weekend is here. Yes. uh, And I get to do a different set of uh, excruciating tasks than uh, fill my uh, weekdays. Well, yeah, but but talking to me about books is not one of those excruciating tasks, right? Let's get to follow up. Uh, <laughs> Smooth, so, you did that well. Nice job. <laughs> so let's see. We got some follow up from a couple last episodes. The first one, I think this is the most exciting one because it's not where we're wrong, which is the next one. But uh, a listener, Terry Heller, was so interested in the sidecar bar, which is a members-only bar that we talked about last time that had specific rules about leaving people alone when they're reading, emailed Sidecar to get some more information. And and here's what we learned. It is members-only, and it's the memberships do not have a cost associated with them. However, they're by... Well, how how would you put this? Invitation-only? Yeah. You have to be invited by a current member or... You can somehow get an invitation from one of the sidecar ladies. Right. Capital S, capital L, sidecar ladies. Who apparently are in charge of the um, guest and membership list. Um, It's attached to PJ Clark's, which is a famous Manhattan watering hole. Um, And we've heard whispers and rumors. So none of this is, this is totally third hand. But it might be hard to, to get a membership because... We've heard, now, again, I can't disclaim this enough, that the kinds of members we're talking about here are like Johnny Depp, Keith Richards, so on and so forth. So I think, Rebecca, our hopes of being members maybe took a hit this week. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, they they took a little bit of a hit, but I'm going to let my hopes spring eternal about Sidecar for a little while longer. Do you think we crashed it? We just like showed up with a couple of copies of, you know, Hemingway and just sat at the bar that they would know? Or Man, I think it's worth a try. Call us away. Like I'd put on a fancy dress for that. I would too. You, I mean, and that would be something. Uh, I think yeah. that might give us away though, Jeff. That's, that's you, true. Wouldn't be would, my best 007 moment. You're not there. inconspicuous. Six four. You know, most of not, the time. Yeah, I know that's gonna work. Uh, I think we should try it. So we'll, you we're, should buy a we're gonna try. We're gonna try at some point to at least get a guest invite so they can blackball us to our face uh, for sidecar. But thanks so much for Terry for uh, figuring that out, and we'll let you know more as things develop. You want to do the correction? Let's do the correction. Yes. So. Uh, We talked about the Women's Fiction Prize, formerly the Orange Prize, that is now sponsored by Bailey's last week. Uh, And we received a correction from our Twitter friend, Benji W., who let us know that Orange is a communications company. It's not a financial firm. But, okay, so we were wrong about that. But it turns out that my Kraken in a bottle joke, which was really just like (laughs) from the Department of Mixed Metaphors, uh, 
was not that wrong because you can get Kraken in a bottle. It's Kraken Rum. And the good people at Kraken Rum also sponsor a book prize. I don't know. This sounds like a fever it's, dream. I don't it does. understand it. It's called the Kitchies, which sounds like it would be a joke book prize, but is not. It's for progressive, intelligent, and entertaining works that contain that contain elements of the speculative or fantastic. And last year, they honored Angel Maker by Nick Harkaway. Which is a book so, I know you like. Man, I love that book. And friend of the show, Jen IRL, loves. Loves. Okay. Yeah, Jen has a um, a bee tattooed behind one of her ears. Which is related to the book, if you, yes, if you don't know that. Yes, which is related that to Angel Maker. That would like a complete non-sequitur otherwise. Not that we deal in non-sequiturs. <laughs> no. Ketchup bottle. <laughs> Ketchup bottle. Okay. I had a corn dog for dinner last night. Uh, You're just teasing me. Okay. Now we're done. Um, so yeah, the Kitchies. So you can the check kitchies. that out at the kitchies.com. I guess the plural of kitch is kitchies, and that's the kitchies, K-I-T C. Uh, no. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> we'll put show it in the notes. Show notes. <laughs> in the show notes, you can find bookwrite.com slash category slash podcast. You can find things the, we uh, don't do on the podcast, math and spelling. Yeah, math and spelling. Uh, okay, great. All so right. that's the follow up. So, so Orange is Orange a communications is, company, not a financial firm. But you can get a Kraken in a you bottle. You can get a Kraken in a bottle. Kraken in a bottle. So that's, I'd say we came out ahead out of that error. I would say so. I feel that my life is enriched by the knowledge that the Kraken Rum people sponsor a book prize and that it's so cool. I feel like we have a post in us about which liquor should sponsor what kinds of book prizes, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, we're going to save that. That's for, a thing to think about. For some other day. So I will think, but right now we should talk about our first sponsor. Do it. Tell me about it. The first sponsor is The Corpse Reader by Antonio Garrido. It's a historical forensic murder mystery. So if you're into CSI, but you're missing all that because it's summer and there's not a thing oh, on a TV. Mm-hmm. Nary a corpse, a new corpse to be found on TV. This there week. is nary. Just my old, DVR. Just old busted up corpses. You've my seen. DVR is just a sad, empty mm. place right now. That's a good point. Uh, so The Corpse Reader, it's set in 13th century China. It's a fictionalized account of the early life of Song Si, who is... Apparently, the founding father of forensic science. A real guy. I a learned real last dude. week. That's a real guy that's fictionalized for this story. And the, the book is translated from Spanish. So we have a contemporary Spanish writer writing in Spanish about 13th century China about the guy who created forensic science. Very cool. Very cool. It's a forensic mystery. So if you're into Dan Brown, but you want something a little bit more literary, that's uh, where the publisher is positioning this one. Cool. Uh, so, you know, learn some stuff, solve some puzzles, get some history. 13th century China, that's not a thing you find in fiction very often. Yeah. Um, Load so it up the, on your reader, go yes. on a plane, get in the car, listen to our audio or, you know, find it however you like it. And uh, thanks so much to the corp, for the Corpse Reader by Antonio Garrido for sponsoring the show. You can go to Amazon and Google and Google the Corpse Reader and you can find it. You can do it. All right, let's get to the news. News. So, um, Jeff, I don't know if you were noticing that the internet exploded this week it did about the nsa yeah um, which you know we don't need to talk about no no one wants to hear us talk except about that, that it made us. people buy books apparently uh i don't know how much to believe about this story am i wrong to be a little skeptical about this well, so the story is apparently sales of george orwell's 1984 which is about a you know you know what it's about but a future westernized country that basically is a surveillance state. Mm-hmm. And um, apparently sales of the book have spiked over the last week, something like a factor of like 6,000% week over week. Yeah. Um, 
And there's, you know, there's a couple of reasons. I guess it's been, you know, a lot of people are making 1984 illusions when talking about PRISM and the NSA. So maybe people are just like, I should really pick that up because I've never actually read it or want to revisit it or see what the deal is. But there's been also some campaigns, and we'll link to this in the show notes too, of sending copies of 1984 to lawmakers uh, in Congress. Um, Flood Washington with 1984 is the campaign. I guess the idea being if we send people enough books, they will stop doing what they're doing, which whatever you think of that um, is kind of an interesting idea. You know, I don't think of 1984 when this stuff. I guess 1984 is so crazy different, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's the point. And I think it's the, uh, maybe it's just the closest literary Right. Thing that people are also the most familiar with. Like there might be a book that does a better job of the surveillance state or is closer to what we're experiencing yeah, now. Probably at least. some William Gibson novel has something. Yeah. Like closer but nineteen eighty four is the one that everybody can reach for, that most of us read in high school, you know, it's part of the like public consciousness about literature. So that's interesting. I think um I think I believe this, partially because Amazon has this cool movers and shakers feature. Right. Uh, this page called Amazon Movers and Shakers, where you can see the biggest gainers in sales ranks in the last 24 hours, and they update it every hour. Um, so 1984 was moving all up and down this page earlier in the week. It was at one point um, up 69% in sales, and then it was up 122% in sales, and at some point it was like 6,000% right. in sales. And I'm looking at it right now for today, and interestingly, the number one right now is Brave New World, which is up 383% in the last 24 hours, and 1984 is not currently showing up on that page That's of the so top 20. Isn't that interesting? Well, I'm guessing that people are getting Brave New World because it's often recommended alongside 1984, right? If you're looking mm-hmm. for sort of classic dystopian fiction. So maybe people have gotten through 1984. It's like, I want more. Right, more and, of that. And it's showing up in their recommendations or, you know, kind of related mm-hmm. uh, books to that. Yeah, I don't, I mean, look, I'm not so sure that sending novels to Congress is the best way to get them to change um you know what they're doing because <laughs> that seems you know like a like a you know a literary fantasy. I guess that's what yeah, it is. It's a literary fantasy, right? It's a, if only it's a Congress read this novel, gesture. everything would be better. Yeah, but it's I guess a symbolic, it's a symbolic gesture. gesture. It's like a, a couple of years ago, there was a campaign to have women mail a million pairs of panties to John Boehner right. after he said a dumb thing. I don't even remember what the dumb thing was, but that it's still happening on Facebook that you can mail your panties to John Boehner. Hmm. Um, it's a, I think it's a symbolic idea. It would be useful if all these people read 1984 and then we could talk about what this means. Um, yeah, here's, can I go the other way? But books as activism, books as activism is interesting. Yeah, I mean, because one thing about 1984, it's like, you, I, I've read it several times and know it relatively well. It's been a while, but like the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, this is nothing like 1984. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's true. It's like, it's actually maybe kind of... Um, counterproductive because if someone said we don't want to be like this we're like this is nothing like 1984 there's no rats in cages on your face and like mm-hmm. all sorts of other things that you know we have a, we do have a whistleblower and people are publicly outraged and i don't know it's just i, I wonder it's it's an interesting idea is like what what are we supposed to learn from 1984 don't do this or this is right, a slippery like, slope and I, I think you hinted at it when you linked to the story in critical linking earlier this week with like, maybe the time to read this book was like 20 years ago as a, like you read this sort of stuff as a preventive measure then. And it's written as a, it's a cautionary tale basically. Right. Um, 
to not let the world become like the world is in 1984. So if we're headed there, I think to me, the more interesting question is what should we be reading right, right. now? Yeah, that's interesting. To make 20 years from now better yeah. or freer. Um, I don't read a lot of sort of dystopian sci-fi stuff, so I don't have a good answer. But if you have one, that might be an interesting uh, follow-up for next week. If you've got a, like, what novel do you think Congress should read now to do, talk about how the world actually is and what to worry about? Um, email us at podcast at bookriot.com, and uh, we will talk about it and share some of those next week. Okay. Well, I got myself into trouble. Man, you knew it was coming. I did. It's true. Um, we don't want to do this too much, but I wrote something on the on the site this week, bookriot.com. Um, basically, the premise being, we, we talk about this word well-read. It gets bandied about. You know, when I was teaching at Columbia, my 18-year-old students who were going to do major in literature and had vaguely literary aspirations were always worried that they weren't going to have read all the right stuff so that they're at some cocktail part in Manhattan and someone's going to ask them about a book they've never read and they're just going to sort of melt into a pool of nothingness. So they were always really anxious about being quote unquote well read and it gets, you know, thrown about and talked about as, are you well read? Do you think you're well read? Is she well read? Blah, blah, blah. And what does it actually mean? So I wrote this hypothetical post of say someone had never read a book before in their life but they suddenly wanted to be well-read. Uh, what, what book should they read? Um, and I put another constraint on it. Like, it can only be 100 books because I guess if you read every book that ever existed, I guess then by definition you'd have to be well-read because what else is there? But 100, you're going from 0 to 100. You could do one book every two weeks. It'd take you about four years. Um, and what would that look at? And so you know, I included some things that people didn't agree with. Not surprising. There's 100 books. There's a lot of different opinions. But really, I think the most interesting kernel was the discussion that happened in the comments about what does it mean to be well-read. Now, my definition that I used includes not only a sort of dabbling or a survey of Western literary history and the canon as we know it, but also to be able to converse about the books of your day, whatever your day is. And I said, well, let's say it's right now because that's who I am and all I can talk about. And so the, the one that people got up in arms about, interestingly, was I put Fifty Shades of Grey on there because it is the biggest literary phenomenon of, probably of our lifetimes. More people are reading it as a new title than have ever read anything um, in our lifetimes. And people are talking about it. I know many people have said that talk about books a lot, that it comes up in conversations all the time. All the time. And so to be well-read, meaning to be able to talk about the books that people are talking about, probably you should read that book. Um, so that, that's kind of what's interesting. I guess, I guess the more conservative or traditional notion of well-read would be you have a good handle on the literary canon. Do I have that right? Is that like the more conservative notion or am I, mis am I missing I, something? I there? think so. I think of it as sort of the old school notion of well-read is that you could, you know, you could get an A on all the English exams. Right. Um, you can you could recite stuff from the canon. You could talk to me about, you know, Ulysses or Proust or uh which neither neither of which I've read, by the way, and I like to think that I uh am at least moderately well read. Uh, right. but yeah, I think that's sort of the old school notion of well read has to do with <clears throat> taking things off a, a list of very important books and and being able to show that you've you've achieved all of that reading and now you are well-read, but because books, at least in our world, uh, are such a part of just our public lives and, and discourse, being able to talk about books and about what's happening in books is, to me, just as valuable as 
being able to recite facts about the literary canon. So, yeah. so I'm with you there. I think, uh, and we argued when you were working on the post about whether it should be Fifty Shades of Grey or Twilight. That right. um, like I left one Twilight of, off. I left yeah, Twilight. one of those had to be on the list because they were both such big. Uh, phenomena, and you went with Fifty Shades, and I think that was the right call because more people are reading it, and it made such a huge cultural impact. Like Harry Potter is there because right. you know you got to know about right. Harry Potter to be able to talk about what's been big in books in the last yeah decade. The list is, I mean, it's slanted for for good. Well, I don't know for good reason, but intentionally slanted towards more current things and more American things. Because I said in the post, like I can only write what it means for me to think about being well read. Um, so that my would-be hypothetical non-reader that wants to be well-read would need to be someone like me. So mm-hmm. it's more American, for example, than it would be if you were writing this, if you were Italian, right? Because I'm sure yeah. there are things that are going on in Italian literature for the last and, 30 years. And um, in my nothing about. personal definition also, I I was thinking about who are the people that I like to talk to about books? You know, mm-hmm. who's fun and interesting to talk to yeah, about books? And like who gets me fired up about uh, what books are and what they do in our lives. And it's not the people who just know all the facts about all the books that are supposedly important. It's the people that want to talk about what's happening and that are interested in current events. And and also one of my personal bugaboos is ha- people having opinions about books mm-hmm. that they have not read. I think, you know, in the same way that you're not allowed to complain about politics if you don't vote, you're not allowed to publicly rant about a book that you haven't read. So if you want to talk about how terrible Fifty Shades of Grey is, then you got to earn it. You mm-hmm. have to read it. You know, I read it. I did not enjoy it. But by God, like, I earned my right to talk about the fact that it's terrible. And now I can back that up with data right. from my See, personal I experience. I bailed on it after 10 pages. So I'm never going to say that it's bad or whatever because I can't. I mean, I can, but. You know, I don't have much of a leg to stand on. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's the only book on the list that I haven't read. But that gives me a certain kind of perspective because that means I even know from someone who hasn't read it how how much you miss having not read it in our t- sort mm-hmm. of current well, climate of talking about books. Like, and it's I don't know the- what goes on in the end. I haven't read this second and third books and oh, yeah. what's going on exactly. So um, that's, you know, that was the most controversial, controversial uh, pick. I do it over again yeah. the same way. You know, I um, think one of the things too is, is not just that you, that to be well-read is to be able to talk about the books that are happening in your time in, in the public conversation, but to be able to talk about the books that people who are just finding their way into books mm-hmm. are interested in. Right. You know, it's, it's also why I read the Hunger Games originally was mm-hmm. to know what the hype was about. Cause people that I knew who didn't normally read were reading the Hunger Games and point. people that I knew who didn't normally read were reading 50 shades of gray, like three trips to the salon in a row. I sat between two other women who were talking about 50 shades of gray with their stylists. Right. And the same thing happened to me with the hunger games, getting a manicure. Like that's what we as book people, like we want to yep. get other people to read, right? We want to get them excited about books and we, ha- we, you have to meet people where they are. So if what people are doing is 50 shades of gray, like you don't have to like that, but if you can talk to them about it and mm-hmm. ha- have read it and understood it, then you, that, then that's the beginning of a potential book recommending relationship well, with that you person. you are probably like me in this regard that people in our daily lives know us as book people. Yeah. And so any book that comes onto their radar, they want to talk to us about. Yes. Um, and know what we think or, you know, did we like it or what else is like, uh, what else might 
be like it that they should read or, you know, what other people are thinking. And I always hate to be like, you know, actually, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so I try to keep up with the stuff that crosses over into my non um, book nerd friends lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that is built into my DNA of what I understand well read to be for me. So um, you can check that out. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, I, you know, I'm also interested in the silence about basically every other pick, <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> right. there was a little quibbling of like, you know, Kafka's one I left out. And if I had it to do over again, probably I'd put in, and Jules I don't Verne know, got the left trend. off, Jules but just Verne barely, got, right? just barely, you know, it's like a uh, hundred sounds like a lot, but when you're dealing with the totality of literary history, it's not actually that many. Um, I had it sort of in the back of my mind, a rule of no one gets to go on twice. Oh yeah, um, that's fair. Except for Homer and Shakespeare. They got two mm-hmm. entries and that um, only the first book in a series, if the, you know, if the series is the big deal, the only the first book was on there. So oh, the hunger games is on there. Um, only Harry Potter is on there. Um, I guess the Hobbit technically was written after Lord of the Rings, but since it happens first in the timeline of the story, I only put The Hobbit on there, though clearly that whole thing and only Game of Thrones. So anyway, you can uh, get mad at me uh, in the comments there if you'd like, but um, that was probably the most uh, interesting conversation I had about books this week. Speaking of old books. Old books. Awesome old books. Awesome old books. Yeah. So Lizzie Skernick uh, is a literary critic. She's a writer. A couple of years ago, she went on this summer mission to read a bunch of vintage YA. And at that point, she blogged her way through it. And it was really cool. And now she is launching Lizzie Skernick Books, which is an imprint that's going to bring back vintage young adult titles from the 1930s through the 1970s. I could not be happier about this. Such a good idea. Like, I... My YA reading began, I guess, like if whatever I read that was YA in the late 80s, early 90s. So these are books that were YA before I was a YA. Uh, I'm so excited. It's just a cool idea. I know so little about the history here that I'm looking forward to seeing what is it recognizably YA? Like if you gave a like a, I guess, a 14 year old today sort of one of these picks from 1958, where they be like, oh, yeah, I get this. Or is it, are they going to feel so dated? Or is it for people who sort of go into it knowing that it's different than what the, do you see what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, I'm really interested in that too. I haven't read any of the titles that, um, that are showing up on her homepage of right, the books yeah. that she's launching. So that'll be interesting because I remember being like, like 14 in the early 90s and not really having much to choose from in young mm-hmm. adult books. Like I read all the Lois Duncan uh, sort of thrillers where they're, uh, as Maureen Johnson pointed out on Twitter this morning, where teenagers were constantly accidentally killing people and dumping the bodies in the rivers. <laughs> I read R.L. Stein's Fear Street series, um, you know, Judy Bloom and Go Ask Alice, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But they're just, YA wasn't 15 years ago what it is now. So I'm really interested to see, you know, what Lizzie picked as YA Mm -hmm. from the 30s through the 70s. I don't think the category existed back then, but I might be wrong. And if I am, you should email us at podcast and bookriot.com and tell us when YA officially began or like what's the first, what's considered the first young adult novel. I would really like to know that. Yeah, Um, I don't know. I mean, the other thing that's interesting, we don't really talk about is uh, speaking of literary canon, like some of those books that we now think of classics are, I think you could call YA, right? I mean, hmm. Catcher in the Rye is YA, sort of. Hmm. 
To Kill a Mockingbird? I mean, oh, I don't think To Kill a Mockingbird is why. No. I mean, it's got a teenage protagonist talking about what's, I don't know. It's, it's. Well, so I think actually one of our contributors is working on a post about yeah. this for next week. So um, she's a young adult librarian. Her name's Kelly Jensen. And her explanation is that what makes a book YA is who the intended audience is. So Catcher, maybe. Maybe. But To Kill a Mockingbird, I don't think is written with 12 to 18 year olds in mind. Mm, okay. That's who we teach it to, though, which is. Interesting. Weird. It's a different conversation, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, but so that's going to, we'll be continuing to talk about that. Well, I also don't know this question. Who was, who, who did Tolkien really think the Lord of the Rings was going to be read by? I wonder if he, did he have any idea? Like, I don't know. That's one of those books that feels like he was going to write it, even if nobody, <laughs> yeah, did, that's true. you know, well, he had tenure at Oxbridge. So, you know, it's, he could write whatever he wanted, I guess. Right. And the whole thing grew out of creating the languages. Yeah, that's, I guess that's true. That's an interesting. Um, thing. But yeah, that's a good. But this is a really interesting project, you know, bringing there's, I mean, we forget how much is out there that's no longer available. Like mm-hmm. it feels like there are so many books that are in print and there are, but it's dwarfed by the number of books that have been forgotten about. Um, and this is a really cool project. So very uh, cool. As, um, as you see it, I, I guess we'll link to it. Uh, Lizzie, uh, Lizzie We'll put it in the show notes. Um, they've got new covers that are look vintagey, and the, the the titles for some of these they feel like YA titles. Mm-hmm. You know, me and flat, Fat Glenda, the <laughs> endings are all alike. Uh, I'll love you when you're more like me. <laughs> to all my fans with love from Sylvie, like I kind of I kind of get yep. it. Um, it feels like YA. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if that gets picked up. You can see it happening with other genres too. If it's if it's yeah, popular. and there's such a cool hook. Here, like I think vintage science fiction, yeah, gets lots of love. Still, yeah, people talk about that, and and people who love that genre, you know, climb back into its backlist enthusiastically. It'll it'll be really cool to see. Like, there's a great crime novels too has a really yeah. good sort of backlist tradition. Of- there's a great hook here. I hope like teen magazines will start writing about. Mm. These and it would be cool to see somebody do. Actually, if you would like a summer project, I would yeah, like there you go. someone out there. I would like for you to read a bunch of contemporary YA and then read a bunch of these Lizzie Skernick books and match them up to each other. Like, tell me if I'm into John Green, which books from Lizzie Skernick's collection I should like, or I if I'm into AST. How, right. I guess the proof of how successful this will be is if sort of 15 year olds in the wild pick some one of these up and they dig it. Yeah. Like it feels like it's not a museum piece. Um, 15 year olds in the wild. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we're at Forever 21 or Claire's or wherever they go. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's go. Let's talk about some e readers. It wouldn't be a Book Riot podcast if we didn't have some e reading uh, news. So this is, um, this was in Smithsonian Magazine, is where we picked it up. But the study that there'd been some talk that maybe um, e reading was not as good for reading comprehension. Mm-hmm. For a lot of reasons, um, but you know that's not as tactile. That it's maybe too easy to read, so you don't have to concentrate as hard on it. There aren't as many visual cues not on as many a page. Visual cues. Yeah. You can you don't get you know sort of the cover as you put it down to remind you as a, a memory hook. Um, but a new study came out. Basically, it says that's all baloney. Yeah, right? at least is, in is the there study. anything else to say about it? I'm not really sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a study in which. Uh, the researcher 
showed 90 undergraduates short passages of texts, and some of them read it on paper, some of them read it on a Kindle, and some of them read it as a PDF on a computer screen. And then they answered comprehension questions. Uh, And overall, their accuracy was at about 75%, and there was no critical difference between the three conditions, Hmm. which I think is interesting. Um, I also believe that maybe the results of this exact same study would have been different four or five years ago when e-reading was brand new. Like when we didn't really know how to read on screens and maybe just a, a process of, a product of fulfilling our own expectations, you know, that it, it feels different to read on a screen than it feels to read on a mm-hmm. book. And so I must do it differently. The, the results of this kind of reading must be different, you know, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But now that we're good at it, yeah. you know, we're better at reading on screens. We are more familiar with it in general. I'm not surprised. I'm, not I'm surprised. glad I'm glad to see this personally just because it's one less thing for I people know. to hold on to and talk about, you know, why ebooks are evil. I do I'm feel just, like we're playing bah. cultural whack-a-mole with totally um, protestations against e-reading. Like we're just going to have to deal with these for a while. Yeah. Um, until either all the moles are whacked or they no longer want to get hit over the head with the hammer and they just stay down there. Um well this one one thing about the study that's worth mentioning is this was for shorter passages. Mm-hmm. So for longer stories, it's, you know, it doesn't really apply. So there still could be something out there just to throw, uh, you know, the scientific cold water that scientists are so good at throwing on their own studies to make sure you don't uh, make too much out of it. But so far, doesn't seem to matter. That's interesting. We like to pay attention to what's going on in mm-hmm. these studies around e-reading. Okay, let's do birthdays. Birthdays. Got Who's two, We got birthdays. We got Who two is big it? ones. Okay. Um, they were actually born in the same year. These are both 1947 babies. Man, that's a good year for books. Good years for books. So the first one, Salman Rushdie, mm-hmm. born June 19th, 1947 in Mumbai. Um, you know him from being him, you know, uh, but also he wrote, let's see, probably, I guess, the well, the book I included on the list of 100 was Midnight's Children, mm-hmm. though probably he became most famous for the satanic verses and not just the book, but that he got a that whole death sentence thing. put on his head by, um, you know, some people who weren't so happy with how he represented Islam, uh, even though he was uh, born Islamic himself. Anyway, born June 19th, 1947, Mumbai. And my factoid about him this is a good one. Have you looked at this? I hope you didn't look at it in the document. I don't look at the. I, okay, I don't good. look at so them. I like for you to surprise me with your birthday. So factoids. his first, he studied, um, he studied history at uh, Oxford. Is that right? Am I Oxford or Cambridge? I can't remember. Anyway, one of those two. Oxbridge, as I call when I can't remember. Uh, but his first job, he was a copywriter for an ad agency, um, Ogilvy and Mather. If you know anything about the history of advertising, a huge influential ad company. Oh, so that's that was his first job, and he wrote. Midnight's Children While Fully Employed by Ogilvy and Mather. Nice. So for those of you out there who think I'm tired after my nine to five, you know, how am I going to write a novel? Only famous people who make a bunch of money off books can write a novel. Salman Rushdie says, screw you. Mm-hmm. To Tony face. Morrison wrote The Bluest Eye while working full time as an editor. So that's so he was not he was not only working a full time job, he was working for the man. I mean, he was like being Don Draper. That's kind of. I mean, it's a little bit later than that. Uh, <laughs> Next week on Mad yeah. Men, Salman he actually wrote a couple of. Um, he wrote some of fairly well-known lines uh, for American Express and um, uh, some other. So that's that's Salman Rushdie, born June nineteenth, nineteen forty-seven. The other nineteen forty-seven birthday is 
June 22, 1947, Octavia Butler, a science fiction writer born in Pasadena, California. Mm -hmm. um, she won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1995. She's won the Hugo and Nebula and all of those um, science fiction fantasy awards um, you could win. And my factoid about her is that um, Juno Diaz, who is one of the sort of literary darlings of the day, we'd have to say. I mean, that's fair to say, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, okay. And I don't mean when that an, in a pejorative way at all. Like When an author wins awesome. a, yeah, when a writer wins a MacArthur genius. Yeah, well, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's got one too. He's a darling. And a Pulitzer and mm -hmm. whatever, and um, a cool guy. He was asked if he could be any writer in the world who he would be, and he said, Octavia Butler. Smart man who he said has written nine perfect novels. Oof. That's good praise for Octavia. That is good praise. So if you're looking for some science fiction, this is, if you're like science fiction, I, I, you know, Octavia Butler might be one of those people that you haven't read because um, she's, not, she's not like the 1A. She's like right below that in people's minds. I don't, think, I don't know if that's fair or not. I'm just saying, you know, science fiction, we think of Asimov and stuff like that. But she's right up there. Check her out. I think you're going to really like Octavia Butler, really interesting stuff. Um, so happy birthday to Octavia Butler and someone, both of whom are still alive, which is a first, I think, for the Book Riot podcast birthday section. I think so. So you could um, write them a nice letter, both of them born in 1947, and we will do them the great honor of not doing the math to figure out how old they are. <laughs> All right, let's do Nobody our next sponsor. Audible.com. You like in audio? Maybe you need Octavia Butler on your... Uh, your phone. You want to listen to an audiobook of Octavia Butler. That'd mm -hmm. be cool. Mm -hmm. um, Audible.com has over 100,000 audiobooks um, in every genre you could possibly want, including science fiction and fantasy. Uh, available on your Android phone, there's an app. On your iPhone, there's an app. On your computer, there's an app. And over 500 devices have, are compatible with Audible audiobooks. Um, we've got a special deal for you. If you go try... Audible and go to audibletrial.com slash bookriot. On there, there's a deal. You can get a month free audible.com. It includes a credit for a free audiobook. So just go in, sign up, you get one for free. You don't like it, not that interesting to you. That won't happen. But you can get a free audiobook. Octavia Butler, Salman Rushdie, something else. Mm. Let's do a couple of picks. I got a pick. Oh, hey, yeah, I got a pick too. <clears throat> Getting Things Done by David Allen. <laughs> this is how this is I got into getting things done. It's a productivity book about how to do work in the modern world. Well, the modern world of 10 years ago, but that's a longer conversation. Um, it's a system of, you know, getting your life and work to do project, long-term goals put together. I long time had heard about this book. I put it off, put it off, put it off. And finally I said, you know what? I can listen to it on uh, Audible dot com on my iPhone when I'm out walking the kids or on the train. And it's really helped me. It's, you know, it's a, it's a good way to listen to it because it slows you down a little bit and you have to listen to it piece by piece. Um, narrated by David Allen himself, the man. And uh, so that's, that's when I would check out. If you're feeling overwhelmed by work, check out Getting Things Done by David Allen on audible.com. You, yeah. you pick. I will shout a hearty amen to getting things done. I haven't listened to it on audiobook, but my right. uh, my paperback edition is well loved, and there are charts yeah. from it torn out and you know posted onto my office walls. That's how I stay sane, and how you stay sane. That's right. Sane-ish, uh, sane-ish. Yeah, as close to sane as Book Riot ever gets. Uh, my pick: 
Benjamin Percy's Red Moon. Ah. Uh, it is a contemporary werewolf story in in an America that is present day, but sort of like one tick off, which I love books like this that take the world and turn them just a little bit. So it's recognizable and believable. But in Benjamin Percy's America in Red Moon, uh, werewolves are a thing. They're a thing that everybody knows about. Uh, they call them lichens in the story. And lichens are treated as basically as second-class citizens. They um, are forced to take mandatory blood tests uh, that prove that they've been also taking the mandatory medication that prevents them from transitioning from humans into werewolves. But of course, there are people who do not like that they are being forced into this. And so there are werewolf lichen like factions and lichen terrorist cells. And there is a lichen republic over in Western Europe in a very cold, dark place that the lichens uh, seem to like. And this story is a political allegory about global politics, about racism, about terrorism, but it's not heavy handed. And Benjamin Percy, who has this really amazing deep voice, reads the audiobook himself. I have been reading this book in print. And then I came across a YouTube uh, recording of his of him doing an interview. And I was like, oh my God, I hope that he reads his audiobook. And I have found that he reads his audiobook and that's how I'm going to finish it because nice. his voice is incredible. And it's the right kind of voice for this like creepy, weird lichen story. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Thumbs up to Red Moon. I, you know what? As you know, I'm squeamish. I can't do that. There's no way, but I bet there's people out there who are into that. So. It, you know, it's really not gory. Oh, okay. All right. So audibletrial.com. Slash book riot. Sign up for a trial. You can get things done or you can or have werewolves. Yeah, that's right. Have were Speaking of werewolves. Speaking of werewolves, look at that segue. Yeah, you don't, you know, you can't uh, you can't cue it up any better than that. So let's say you were interested in werewolf erotica, Rebecca. Just well, theoretically. And also say you were an associate of the Me an associate of the Mexican mafia and you were in jail. Okay. You I'm with you. You have a problem. What is my besides that I'm an associate of the Mexican mafia no, and I'm in jail? Middle. You got another another problem on top of that. Okay, tell me you my problem. You couldn't get your werewolf erotica in jail. They wouldn't let you. That's a sad story, Jeff. So last week it came out that a prisoner in the California penal system, her name, his uh, name, his name, excuse me, Andres Martinez, who is incarcerated in the Pelican Bay State Prison, had ordered. Um, Matilda Madden's The Silver Clown, Crown, The Silver Crown. <laughs> I feel like The Silver Clown is a totally different animal. Which is werewolf erotica. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the prison guards who vet the books the, the uh, inmates reads saw that it had some sexy times, um, denied it. Uh, says, you know, this isn't, this isn't okay for, uh, for an inmate to read. Um, Andres spent two years challenging that decision and this week, a judge decided, you know what? You can read that. That is okay. What a weird story. It is a weird story. So the, the story says also that the guard who took it away cited the sexual content, called the book obscene, and then said that it was likely to incite violence. I guess that's the key phrase. Likely to in, books out of prison is right. likely to incite and, violence. You know, when I, back in a previous life, I worked for a big box bookstore and part of my job there was to coordinate the large orders from big companies and institutions. And uh, one, one of our regular clients was a local prison. Hmm. Um, and they would submit every quarter a giant list of books that they were buying for their library. And it was really interesting to see the variety. Hmm. And But there were 
you know, there were um, like lots of crime fiction was going into the prison and also lots of romance. Mm-hmm. But um, there were Which books frankly that, is what goes into the general population right. as well. But yeah. yeah. But but then the, I would have these conversations where I would get phone calls from the people who were coordinating the orders and they would say, actually, we can't order this one because it's too violent. So like oh. this is a this is a thing that is used to determine what prisoners are allowed to read and what they're not allowed to read is do we think that this book will incite violence, uh, particularly among people who are in prison for violent crimes, as th- as this person was. He was an attempted murderer. Um, mm-hmm. But so the judge read the book. Yep. And the judgment, which we can drop the link to, is really worth reading because the, the judge goes through and cites how he finds literary value in this book and therefore why he has determined that the prisoner has a right to read it. Uh, just... I mean, who knew? I, I guess, I, I guess, I'm, you like, I mean, I guess this is one that, this is what due process looks like, right? Right. You, you file a complaint and someone looks at it and says, you know what, this is okay. Um, so I'm good on Andres Martinez for sticking up for what they can read in jail. And, you know, shout out to the California legal system for, I think, getting this right. Yeah, I think they got this one right too. It makes me interested to see, I would love to see a list of what else isn't allowed. Are yeah, there titles I, that are just straight up banned? I'm guessing it's hard to get a copy of Mein Kampf and uh, Pelican Oh, probably. Um, but uh, that's just that's just a supposition on my part. What would uh, you want to read if you were in prison, Jeff? <sighs> Shawshank <laughs> Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> or t- tunneling for beginners. <laughs> tunneling for dummies. I was thinking maybe some sort of like Zen meditation. Oh yeah, that too. Or maybe um, uh, the in you know California Appeals Courts 101. Right. So here's one I'm wondering about. I read this memoir a few years ago called "Orange Is the New Black" mm. uh, by Piper Kerman, who is a like an upper crusty blonde white lady from a wealthy family, and now she's in her I think late 30s or early 40s but when she was in her 20s she was bored and restless and she got involved with a woman who was involved with drug smuggling and at oh, one point I heard about this book yeah yeah. yeah it was it was really good at one point Piper Kerman was carrying suitcases lined with cash across international borders wow she got away with it she got scared so she got out and then 10 years later she's working as like a tv producer her life is fine (laughs) she thinks that this is you know just like this negative secret back in her past and all of a sudden the government shows up like on her doorstep one day and she gets indicted and there's like two years going to trial and then she goes to prison for a year um and she wrote this memoir about that experience in prison and how terrible it was and the whole thing was Basically, like, here's the only person who can get this story told is an upper-class white lady who ends up in prison with all these other people who don't have voices publicly. Well, as Um, someone who spent um, more than six hours in the pokey, I can really uh, identify with that. (laughs) Right. All right, let's get started. All right, okay. I'm going to do three, two, one, and then I'm going to just just do an all right. Kyle, you hear that? So three, two, one. All right, so there was another story this week that was a kerfluffle story. I, and I guess the werewolf erotica, that's an actual sort of newsy story. But there was mm-hmm. a kerfluffle around an assignment given by a high school English teacher. Um, York Prep School in Manhattan. Uh, students were asked to write suicide notes from the perspective of a suicidal character in the book The Secret Life of Bees. 
And as you might imagine, someone was like, whoa, um, I'm not so sure that that's a super good idea. Yeah, I'm not so sure how it's surprising to the teacher that this panned out this way. Yeah, I mean, I can see maybe what the teacher was trying to do. Yeah, the, yeah. the statement the statement in the piece that I'm reading says the teacher wanted the assignment to be a lesson in carpe diem. She wanted them to look and see why one should live life to the fullest. So there are ways, like, I, I read this. I mean, you can spin piece. it. Yeah, you can spin it, I you think. You can spin that around, I think. And right. maybe, what, what maybe the assignment instead is that you write a letter to the suicidal character. Yes, right. Maybe. Also, there are way more interesting things that happen in The Secret Life of Bees mm. besides a character being suicidal. Not that that is a, you know, a thing to downplay, but it's not really what the book is about. Well, the, and the, the suicide note was not just a suicide note like, thanks, mom, or, you know, I'm sorry. It was justifying their suicide. So it was not only like, fare thee well, it was justifying, it's, which is even another it, yeah, stranger twist on this. I mean, hey, you look at a room full of 14-year-olds and tell them to put themselves in the head of a character who wants to kill herself. That's, I mean, that's a huge task for, for anybody. I can, yeah. see it, I can see it being an interesting thought experiment or writing assignment for a grown-up or a professional writer who wanted right. to explore the idea or something. But this is just, I think maybe this is bad job, teacher. Yeah, I think this is, maybe you should have thought about that a little harder. Um, so anyway, I, I don't think she got fired or anything. I think it's just became an issue. Um, so this is in Manhattan, of course. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> that's, I, I, you know, I have to say if, if my 14 year old came home with that assignment, I think I would have called somebody. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have called for the teacher's head, but I would have said, you know, I'm not so sure that this is a really great idea. Um, to, to try to, to try yeah, to get students to do that. I, it's interesting, you know, the teacher talking about wanting to engage students in talking about difficult issues. And and I am kind of excited that, yeah. that the kerfluffle was not parents being upset that their kids were reading a book in which someone was suicidal. Like that's really good point. Excellent good, point. Good job, parents, yeah. for mm -hmm. letting your kids face up to these difficult issues in their reading and going with it when teachers want to talk about them. Just not quite the right way into this question, I think. Yeah, and um, I can imagine the jolt you would get if you were going through your kid's stuff and you and saw you got their and they're like, what the? Uh, hopefully it had Mrs. Turner or whatever the teacher's name was at the top to mitigate some of that. But uh, So that was an interesting story. I'm not really sure there's much else to say other than that's a strange story. I guess... I that guess, happened um, and we had feelings about yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. That was a good story. So let's, let's do new books. Oh, new, new books. books this okay. week. You had a bunch of good ones here. Yeah, there are good ones. This first one is, I, I think, one of my favorite books of the year so far. It's The Engagements by J. Courtney Sullivan. These are all books that came out this past week, so you can go to your local bookstore or open up your iPad or whatever and read them right now. So um, Courtney Sullivan wrote Maine, which was a huge novel a couple of summers ago. And The Engagements presents um, multiple narratives. I think it's five different stories, uh, five different characters across 100 years that are all connected by this one diamond ring. And it's really subtle how they're connected by this ring. Um, one of the characters is sort of a proto-Peggy Olson, who's a, a young single woman working in an ad agency. And she is the woman who comes up with A Diamond is Forever for the De Beers Diamond Company. Ah. Um, she's The character is based on the real-life person. Courtney Sullivan did a ton of research. Um, so the book is about, um, it's about marriage, about why some people want it, and why some people really don't 
want it, uh, what, what it looks like when marriage goes well and what it looks like when marriage goes not so well, mm-hmm. and about advertising and the history of the relationship between advertising and engagements and how we got to this point of thinking that he doesn't really love you unless he buys you a big ring. Um, Courtney's one of my, yeah, it's so awesome. Courtney's one of my favorites. Um, She does this really interesting thing of, she writes literary stories about real women's lives. There's a feminist voice to it that's not heavy handed. Um, And I think this is where you go if you're Courtney Sullivan and you wrote this huge summer blockbuster a few years ago. You go a little bit deeper into mm-hmm. uh, into your perspective as a writer um, who looks at what women's lives are like, and man, it's good. Cool. Um, it's so good. Also out this week is The Silver Star by Jeanette Walls. Speaking you probably, of feminist voices. Yeah, you probably know Jeanette Walls um, for her memoir, The Glass Castle, which was like huger than huge when it first came came out. This is her second work of fiction. It's the first one um, that is not, to my knowledge, based on her life at all. Um, It's about a 12-year-old and 15-year-old set of sisters who are struggling alone after their artist mother leaves to find herself in the 70s, uh, which is a thing that I believe probably happened in the 70s to people. Uh, And they go, they find out who their dad is and why their mom left in the first place. They get jobs doing office work for a dude, and then something goes down between one of the sisters and the guy that they work for. Um, Well, I need a list of guesses to figure that one out. I know. Uh, I haven't read this one yet. I'm really interested. Jeanette Walls is really sensitive to um, parents and other authority figures abusing their power. Um, She does that in her memoir. She does it in her fiction. So it'll be interesting to see how that one shakes out. But if you liked The Glass Castle, I'm guessing you will be excited. And probably to- a lot of you listening have read The Glass Castle because people yes. are still picking that up all the time. Mm-hmm. And that one is actually on the summer reading lists for a bunch of the high schools in my area, mm. at least. Um, an interesting story about being a teenager, having a rough having a rough life. Um, Paperback releases, good stuff this week too. Uh, Some remarks, essays and other writing by Neil Stevenson, who's uh, speaking of giants in science fiction, like Octavia Butler, Neil Stevenson is huge. And this uh, book collects previously published work and a new essay about technology, economics, history, science, pop culture, philosophy, all sorts of stuff. Neil Stevenson is into all of it. Uh, This should be a lot of fun to read and a little taste of everything in the book. And also is Natalie Serber's Shout Her Lovely Name, which, man, I just like that title. It's a good title. It is a good title. It's a short story collection about mother-daughter relationships. And it actually sounds good. Normally, I roll my eyes at anything that is about the mother-daughter dynamic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I've read pieces of this book. And it's pretty fantastic. The, the parts that I've read so far, Shout Her Lovely Name by Natalie Serber. So you've got some good choices if you need something choices. good to read this week. Uh, summer is in full swing, man, for picking your vacation reading. All right. We've got a pair of Judy Bloom stories to wrap things up today. Judy Bloom, good stuff. Good stuff. So let's start with the Kickstarter. Okay. Because, because, because it's we, the best thing ever. I, well, because you got to fund this thing. We it, do have to fund this it thing. It is a Kickstarter for a musical adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which is the most adorable idea of all time. It is the best idea. Judy Bloom's 
Uh, we talked on a couple previous episodes about how her book Tiger Eyes was being adapted yeah. for film and the movie just opened and there has yet to be an Are You There God It's Me Margaret movie which like that is the thing I would throw all of my dollars at but there mm -hmm. is this Kickstarter there are eight days left they only need to raise $1,500 and they're less than $400 away from that's it that's right they, they, it ends in eight days and it's called are you, $490 it's called Are You There God it's a new musical review right and there's some nice rewards there you can get a copy of the uh, soundtrack um, you can get some tickets the show if they get it all funded, is going to be actually performed in Minneapolis in um, early August. Yeah, this is being done by so, Blue Umbrella Productions, and it is five singers taking a loving look back at the tumultuous path through puberty. And my favorite line from the Kickstarter language is, with your help, we can make our awkward junior high nightmares come true. And you know. You have to like that. Yes, somebody is going to stand on stage doing, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, so that's that's a great production. This is just the kind of stuff we love to see on Kickstarter. Go throw them a few bucks, uh, and you can uh, get something nice out of it. So that's our yep. first, our first Judy Bloom story. You want to take the next one? The next one, Judy Bloom was in uh, the Chicago area earlier this week for the what is it called? The Printers Row Literary yes. Festival. And while she was there, she was talking about uh, Glen Ellen, which is a Chicago suburb uh, in the Glen Ellen School District. Some parents wanted to ban the perks of being a wallflower, which is not a Judy Bloom book. It's by Stephen Chbosky. Um, and these parents wanted to have it banned from eighth grade classrooms due to the book's sexual content. Mm -hmm. uh, I've read this book many times. Yeah. It's not really explicit, but these mm -hmm. parents didn't like it. You know, parents don't like to think that their eight your their eighth graders know things about sexy times. Mm -hmm. uh, Judy Bloom made a video while she was at the Printers Row Literary Festival where she said that she loves the perks of being a wallflower and she wants to keep the book alive. And she also donated her five thousand dollar prize that she received from the Tribune's Young Adult Award to the National Coalition Against Censorship in honor of the Glen Ellen students that are fighting Man. this ban. So if you're Judy Bloom and you're walking around, like awesome just falls out of you. I think so. You're just awesome all the time. She is. You know, she's also been on the end of some book challenges. That's true. That's um, true. No so stranger she, to this sort of thing. But it's great that she's speaking out against the broader yeah. issue um, and in favor of keeping books that are great for teenagers available to teenagers, not just defending Judy Bloom. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't think about this until I saw this story that you hear, you know, there's a big challenge to a book in some school district and maybe I've just missed it. Maybe it doesn't happen, but I don't see these stories of like big name authors rushing to the defense of a book that's being challenged. Do you, am I, am I wrong? Um, you know, I think there are a few big name authors who do it pretty consistently. Lori Hulse Anderson is one of them. Several of her titles have well, been challenged. Let me just be and fair. Judy Bloom. I mean, like on that level, yeah. like a name that like everybody knows. That's true. Um, so I don't know. It, it, I'm not she's, saying they she's have pretty to. Awesome. Just, this is not a story I've heard before where someone's coming to the defense of someone else's book that's being challenged like this. It, yeah. It's probably happened, but I, I think it's that pretty was, great. I think it's pretty, pretty good great on you, too. Judy Bloom. If you know of other authors, other big authors, yes, defending, love to see that story. Defending other books, podcast at bookriot.com. Let us know. You know, but perks of being a wallflower. That's one. 
that I'm going to have to just suck it up and read one of these days. I'm sure Oh my gosh, Jeff, you've never read it. No, no. I, I'm so bad at YA, dude. I'm it's, so bad. I think it's like, um, it's essential. The Perks of Being a Wallflower is essential. Okay. Mate, well, I'm doing a summer and of catch-up that we'll the, talk about some other time, but yeah, maybe it'll go on that. It's, uh, you know, everybody likes to drive on a summer night with the windows down and the music turned up. and. Yeah. The Perks of Being a Wallflower captures what that feels like better than any book I've ever read that's tried to. I, I'll tell you my, my thumbnail bias against it. That's completely unfair. Would you like to hear it? Hit me. I feel like my sense of the book, and it's completely unfair and uninformed because I haven't read it, so there, there's all my caveats, is that it feels like a watered down on the road. That's what it feels like to me. Oh, my friend. Okay, I'm wrong. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. It's I'm not sure, I knew I was wrong. You were, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh. I'm all all kinds of wrong. (laughs) You may not love it, but it's not a watered down on the road. I I know it's just that everyone talks about that scene of like, for a minute we're infinite or whatever. It just feels like watered down on the road. Well, there's a whole lot also, you know, it feels to me the closest to like what freaks and geeks would be if freaks and geeks were a book. If you ever watched that. I've seen a couple episodes. Yeah. There are, there's a lot of. Teenagers sitting around in somebody's basement on a Friday night, like having alternately really stupid and really meaningful conversations, uh, yes. listening to music well. and thinking about how terrible and awesome it is to be 14. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good. It's good All stuff. Right. Should, I might read it. I you should read it. it. Okay. I mean, Ralph Ellison is tearing my heart out so I can read the book that you love. So you're oh, gonna- <laughs> all right. That's fair. That seems like a fair trade. Um, so good for you, Judy Bloom. Good for you, Judy Bloom, our hero of the week. I think we should do heroes of the week. She was our hero of the week. No, we've had we had Harper Lee when mm-hmm. she sued to get her own rights back. Yep. We had some other one that we liked. We so- ended on a high note last week. I can't remember who it was. Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. Right. Dolly Parton, okay. book fairy. Book fairy. And they imagine 50 million books to, to kids. Oh, so, so cool. So Judy Bloom, I think this week is the winner of the the semi-weekly Book Riot Hero of the Week. Completely award. unofficial but totally meaningful Completely award. Completely unofficial but totally meaningful. Um, and that's our show. It is. It went fast. I think that's everything. A we, had a, we had a good week in books. Really good week in books. So you can catch me on Twitter if you're interested in my inane ramblings at Reading Ape. They can catch you on Twitter where? At Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. If you've got something you want to say to us, the podcast at bookriot.com. No, excuse me, just podcast at bookriot.com. You can find Book Riot on Twitter at Book Riot and BookRiot.com. I think that's it. Yeah, show notes will be at BookRiot.com slash category slash podcast. So we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday.